here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. I've got a course coming up on the 25th of October called How to Avoid the 10 Biggest Mistakes That Good Writers Make That Stop Them From Getting Published. Now, writing is unfortunately one of the endeavors in which working hard doesn't guarantee success. You could spend hours daily at the keyboard, but that doesn't mean you're going to be published. Even if you write beautiful sentences and have a great story idea, you still might struggle to land an agent. What am I doing wrong is a question you might be asking yourself more and more. In this three-hour virtual course, we'll look at how to avoid the 10 biggest mistakes that good writers make that stop them from landing an agent and getting published. Go to my website at biancamaray.com, look under the courses tab, and you can book for it there. 
Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today, we have a special guest who's joining us to critique the query letters, but we'll keep that as a surprise for a little bit later. Carly, why don't we begin with you? Dear Carly, Cece, and special guest star, JL, first of all, thank you for my year-long masterclass on the business of writing during your Books with Hooks segment on Bianca's fantastic podcast. You've all been so helpful with your sharp critiques and inspiring words, and I'm constantly running out to buy the books you recommend. I thought you might enjoy the morally duplicitous but lovable main character of my debut novel. Completed 88,000 words, The Little Third is an upmarket novel with book club potential. I was inspired to write this twisty dramedy after reading Jiayoung Fan's New Yorker article about Chinese mistress dispeller agencies that seduce these women, little thirds, away from cheating husbands by tempting them with better jobs, moving them to different cities, or even seducing them with romantic alternatives. Subverting the tropes of classic noir detective stories, the little third might appeal to fans of Better Call Saul's pragmatic and shady character Kim Wexler, with the brisk pacing of Kristen Chen's Counterfeit and Marissa Stapley's Lucky. The Little Third tells the story of a dysfunctional friendship and a con artist's circuitous route towards personal redemption. It's 2012, but might as well be 1952, at Chicago's retrograde Spade and Sedgwick Agency, where rich wives go to save their marriages, paying exorbitant prices to remove the troublesome mistresses from their husbands' beds. With the promise of a game-changing new case, Philippa Phil Spade manipulates her old partner, Clancy Sedgwick, to leave academia and come back to their agency. Their mission, to provide an unhappy wife with the quote-unquote gold package for a complete mistress removal. Torn but unable to resist the money, intellectual Australian Clancy agrees to train an arrogant American bro while working once more along his best friend Phil. Clancy doesn't realize Phil plans for their agency to become a true competitor with the original mistress dispeller's agency, the MDA, back in Shanghai. Going up against their ex-boss and Phil's ex-girlfriend proves difficult since Phil and Clancy poached clients from the MDA in the past. Of course, Phil doesn't know Clancy's own motivations for returning or about the grudge he's held since their last case resulted in a mistress committing suicide. When that victim's sister comes looking for answers, Phil and Clancy will need to confront the dark side of their job and friendship. After living in Hanging, China for the last six years, I've just moved to Oceanside, California with my husband this month. I currently work as an online English instructor for the University of Illinois, where I also received my PhD in 18th century British literature. An emerging writer, I've been active in creative writing workshops through Catapult and Chicago Story Studio. With my own reading, I recently finished in love Jenny Tinghui Zhang's Four Treasures for the Sky, and I'm now rereading Persuasion, my literary comfort food. When I'm not writing or teaching, I can be found listening to podcasts like Karina Longsworth, You Must Remember This, Watching Old Movies, or Taking Long Walks with our bossy Corgi Beatrice. Thank you again for your help. This year, your podcast is simply the best. Marilyn. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay, so what was your take on that? All right. So this is this is a really fascinating concept. I haven't heard or seen a book like this at all. Maybe it's out there, but it's completely new to me. So I think this is really fascinating as an overall concept and overall hook. I do think it's very, very unique. But I'm just going to kind of start with my critique and I'll go top to bottom here. So I like this line about the morally duplicitous but lovable main character. I think that's great. You have here an upmarket novel with book club potential. I kind of think these two are the same thing. I don't know. I don't. I think you could just call it an upmarket novel. I don't think you kind of need to add in the the book club potential there. I think this the line about I was inspired to write this like dot 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 as it goes on. That bit needs to go at the bottom because I think one of the things that I'm having trouble with with this query letter is that we really want to fall head over heels for a character. 
right? We really want to know like who it is we are, we are connected to and we are going to get invested in. And I still have no emotional investment you know, connection here because I, I just haven't met anybody yet. We keep talking about the concept. So this part, I, I would move the, like what it was inspired by probably to the bottom. However, that makes it tricky because in order to kind of understand the next paragraph, we kind of have to understand this, this concept, right. And where it comes from. So I don't, I do understand how tricky this is, but I just want to let you know what I think is absent is the personal human character connection here. And then next, again, we're still in, in a big chunk into this query letter because then it comes our comps, story of our dysfunctional friendship, our con artist Circuitous wrote towards personal redemption. All of these are still very big picture, right? And I still don't actually know what your particular book is about. And we're quite far into the query here. So I do like when we start to get into the, it's 2012, but might as well be 1952, right? We get to kind of understand exactly what this agency's job is. And, and again, this is where it starts to get interesting. What I'm still not clear on is who the main character is, right? Like who exactly are we, are we following here? We have our Philippa, Phil Spade and their old partner. And are they equal POVs? Are we spending equal amount of time with them? I'm struggling a little bit to kind of feel connected. And then some of the next parts, I'm kind of just like, oh, does this really matter? Or why does it matter here? For example, torn but unable to resist the money, intellectual Australian Clancy agrees to train an arrogant American bro. Like, why does all that matter in, in the context of what's actually happening as a plot device? And then Clancy doesn't realize Phil's plans for the agency to become a true competitor with their original MBA back in Shanghai. Again, like, does this really matter? I mean, it's a little bit of character motivation, but again, I still don't know like what it is, what it is, is this like con artist driving force. Like what are we propelling through here with plot? Because I feel like it's here. It's just, I'm just not seeing it on the page. And then we kind of get to this, this big bit at the bottom, which is the motivation, the grudge, the unfortunate case of the mistress committing suicide, victim sister comes looking for answers. Like to me, that's all the interesting part, you know, like that's all the part that's again, buried at the bottom. So I would move all of that up. I just feel like we, we buried that quite a bit. And then I think the author bio paragraph is good. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay. Will you give us an indication of what's in those opening pages? So we start off with our character named Phil that we met in the query letter. It says, Phil has given up cigarettes for Lent. So we learn a little bit about Phil. We're learning a little bit about the agency that they work at. We get a lot of description about the actual physical building, the history, the architecture, the importance of the building itself. We're kind of waiting for a client to arrive. And so our client shows up, Mrs. Helen Moore. She announces that she's here. She's kind of coming in. Um, she says, you know, a friend spoke highly of your agency and they're kind of like starting to get to know each other, having like their first one-on-one -on -one client meeting in the office. And so we're kind of getting a sense of who everybody is. Phil is not thrilled that this character is early for their meeting. This character is frustrated that Phil doesn't seem to know anything about her file. So there's just a lot of kind of just like confusing tension here that we're just not quite clear on, but we're kind of learning from this client a little bit about their packages and what they offer. And so she's asking them, how much do you guys cost? And Phil's like, well, how much we cost depends on, you know, what services you need. So they're kind of talking through this client meeting. And we're also learning a bit about her relationship with her husband and, and what all went wrong. And that's where we end. Okay. So what was your take on them? All right. So unsurprisingly, I think we need a timestamp here because we open with this thing like Phil has given up cigarettes for Lent. 
And I'm like, you know, cigarettes aren't super in vogue right now. So I think to establish, I mean, I know that 2012 isn't today, but 2012 is modern. So I think we just really need to, we need to know that we're, we're in the year 2012. Also on the first page, you talk about the fact that the building, I think, was built a long time ago. They're talking about the 1920s on this page. We're talking about kind of this like PI type of character agency situation. All of it to me is just like how very confusing. So we kind of just need to like ground it in a place and time. We do ground it quite a bit in the actual setting. As I said, the building is quite descriptive, but in terms of time, I think we need one. But overall, I'm not really convinced we're starting in the right place. So I don't think the first page is working. I think we just need to get rid of that. And I need to I think we need to start when our client walks in. So I think that's kind of the most the most compelling start. So for me, it's just the top of page three, tapping your cell phone against the front hall's wooden archway. Mrs. Helen Moore announces her entrance. And then we kind of like walk into their meeting because I always say a book should begin at the most interesting point in a character's life. And it seems like this character is really going to shake things up, right? This client character. A line that I really, really liked was the difference between a 20 year old girl and a 40 year old woman was the difference between a butter knife and a switchblade. I thought that was a really great line. I liked that a lot. But I think, I think I still have a lot of questions about this, you know, like, I want to know kind of maybe why Phil does this job. I don't know if I need to know that in the first five pages, but I'm kind of confused about that. I'm also a bit curious about, again, these, this agency's goal. So it says at one point, she says, you basically have three options. One, leave your husband. Two, stay with your husband and maintain the status quo. Or three, save your marriage. But this also seems like she kind of explains this a bit, but like, this is a very dated concept of like what a marriage is. And so I almost feel like three, it's like save your definition of your marriage or save or or save what you remember to be about your marriage. I don't know. I'm just worried this is coming off a bit like not so open-minded <laughs> about like what modern marriage could potentially be. I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling a bit challenged here. And I think in the next paragraph, she says, our job here at Spade and Sedgwick is to help you save your marriage. Listen, as much as I believe in the sanctity of marriage, I'm also a diehard feminist. I believe that by saving your marriage, you're also saving your self-respect. So a lot of this is like morality police a little bit about like how women should be. And I, I don't know. I'm just, I think I might be a little bothered by that. And so that's why I'm like, maybe I'm not particularly vibing with this exact project. But as I said, I want to know when we will learn that Phil wants to do this work. And and yeah, those are kind of some of the, the things that I'm curious about. And also another thing at the end, the client character says, you know, I found Grant's credit card statement. He still does hard copies for all of the bills. And I'm like, well, that's like, again, in 2012, I guess that might be true. But I think, again, that's another reason why we probably need a, a timestamp just to frame this all for us. So yeah, I mean, I really like this overall concept. I feel like maybe I'm just not the right person for it because I just have too many questions about the why of it all. Okay, Carly. Thank you. Right. So Cece, now we're going to go to your query letter. Will you read that for us, please? Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, for so many of us, the shit no one tells you about writing podcast is more than just a great resource for emerging writers. It's an entire community where we support each other on the journey to publication. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for all that you do. I welcome you and JL's invaluable feedback on my query letter and first five pages. Cece, with your interest in dysfunctional families and morally gray protagonists, I want to share The Senate Saint, an 88,000-word thriller. It combines the twisted power dynamics of Samantha Bailey's Watch Out for Her with the buried secrets of Laura Dave's The Last Thing He Told Me. Amateur historian Anne wants to preserve headlines, not make them. 
but at the most important press conference of her state legislative career, the headstrong 32-year-old is accused of murdering her only friend. Even worse, the accusation stems from an email the victim, an investigative reporter, sent hours after her murder. Anne knows she's innocent, at least of this crime, but when she's violently confronted by a man who blames both women for his political demise, Anne makes a desperate bluff to save herself. She threatens to publish the secrets on her friend's missing hard drive. It works for now. But Anne knows from experience that even the deepest lies resurface eventually. To recover from her injuries... Anne returns to her historic hometown to finish physical therapy, play nice with her estranged sister, and quietly find the missing hard drive she lied about. When a series of threatening cards and microfilm photos appear at her home, Anne realizes she's not the only one seeking justice for past sins. She could ask her former childhood sweetheart, Anne Reluctant Alibi, for help, but then Anne would have to share the real reason she hadn't been home in years. The Senate Saint is inspired by my career at a lobbying nonprofit and volunteer work as a court-appointed advocate for youth in foster care. When I'm not writing or co-leading the hashtag prompts and comps discussion on Twitter, you can find me meticulously planning our family's Halloween costumes. Thank you for your consideration. Sincerely, K.A. Wonderful, Cece. Okay, so what did you think of that? Okay, I really liked this query letter. I thought it was really well written, really well done. The comps obviously intrigued me. I am a huge Sam Bailey fan. I love to watch out for her. I'm sure everyone has heard me rave about it at this point. I do have a little bit of notes when it comes to the, surprise, surprise, plot paragraphs. So she's accused of murdering her only friend, right? In the middle of a press conference. At first, when I read that, I thought the accusation was public. And so I was wondering, like, why aren't the police after her or at least talking to her? But then it occurred to me that because it's an email, the email could have been sent just to her. So I'm confused about the nature of this accusation, public versus private. And I feel like that really changes the nature of the story. Like you're telling me thriller. So I'm assuming public because that would really up the stakes. And also the friend having been murdered. Is she aware of this? Because like... I'm not clear on that. I'm not clear on like she's found out that her friend died and she was accused of, of the murder. Or if it's like she already knew her friend had died, but now she's being accused of the murder. And again, that changes the urgency and changes the emotionality. So I would clarify that. When it comes to her journey back home, I don't think you need all the details. Like to recover from her injuries, she returns to her historic hometown to finish physical therapy. That's just adding extra words to the letter. It didn't bother me. Like, honestly, what? how many words are we talking about? 10? Like, I don't even know. I didn't count. But if you want that tight query letter, especially since I'm asking for a little bit more detail in other places, that's something you can cut because we don't need that. The book can have that, right? But the query letter doesn't need that level of detail. And this man who violently attacked her, is he coming back? We do have the line where she says, secrets always come back to bite me, essentially. But, but what... Like, is there ticking time tension is my question. Because I think that there should be because it's a thriller. And if there is, I'd love to know for sure. Especially since when the notes start coming, that just ups the tension even more, right? Like that just makes it boil. So so I like the idea of including the specific ticking time tension. And then when it comes to the big secret she's keeping, the real reason she hasn't been home in years... I don't think there's necessarily a solution to this. I'd have to talk to the author to be sure and just learn more about the story. But because we have no idea what it's even 
about like I don't know if, if the real reason is murder or shame, like or, I don't know. So, there's so many things that it could possibly be. It's not adding to the story in a dominoes tipping over sort of effect. It just feels like it's a satellite orbiting the plot right now. Not an issue in terms of like personally, I would still scroll down and read the pages if this were a submission. But if there's any way to thread this in in a way that honors the web effect, right? Like the thing about it all being connected, the idea that everything has to be connected in a story, I would try to do that. So yeah, those are my notes. I really like the author paragraph. I really like the fact that there's a personal connection to the story from the own work that you did. So it's a really great job. I really enjoyed this. Awesome. Cece. Okay. So what was in those opening pages? So we have a, our protagonist and she feels like she's being watched. So she pulls up her phone, sees a picture of her nephew, which she only has access to thanks to Clay. Speaking of Clay, Clay shows up and we learn that she isn't sure that he would. They haven't seen each other in 15 years. She whisks him into the party where Clay butters up donors, talking about his background in foster care and telling the donors that the project Anne is advocating for would have made a big difference in his life. So Anne is really thankful for what he's doing, and she knows that this is something he would not be doing if she hadn't asked. At one point, she wonders if Courtney said something to Clay or maybe Damien, but no one knows the real reason why Anne left town. So while Clay is in the restroom, Risa pulls Anne aside and her confidence, Risa's confidence, looks like it's cracking and we learn that this is a look that Anne knows really well. That's the plot. All right. So what was your take on them? Okay. I have a lot of notes on this one. So it's possible that Bianca will, will, will cut me off before I have time to go through all of them. It's a really interesting concept. I enjoyed the concept. There were a few sentences, quite a few sentences that I kept highly in being like, I love the sentence. I love this insight. So good. So I do want to be clear. There is a lot to love. I do think it needs tightening. I think you're starting in the right place, but I think it needs tightening. So one, clarify her emotionality in the beginning. When she thought she was being watched, I thought at first she was afraid, but then she's just looking at her phone and being melancholic about her nephew. So then I thought she was sad. And then she seemed relieved that Clade showed up. So I just don't, like clarify her emotionality. Like, and I think if it's going to be fear, like stick to fear. Anne and Clay are seeing each other for the first time in 15 years. There has got to be more interiority in this meeting. Even if she's seen pictures of him online, when we meet someone we haven't seen in a long time, especially a childhood friend, our brains are clocking the differences, adjusting imagination versus expectation with reality. And she should be wondering also how he is seeing her, like how his eyes are registering her changes. And also, as they chat, there should be interiority references to the people they know in common, because that's also something that our brain, like, like one or two lines just to really up the tension and the believability. I would also tighten the power imbalance. Here's what I mean by that. Anne is asking Clay for a favor, a big favor, and it's a favor that's important to her. It's a huge ask. This is established. When one party asks another party for a favor, a debt is created. Can we see the ripple effects of this in her head? For example, is she thinking to herself that, I don't know, this is payback for something she did for him when they were kids? And I want to be clear, when I say debt and payback and all these things, even if you're a really wonderful person, these things still happen. Everything is currency in society, and it's important for us to see how her brain would register this. It would also tell us how desperate she was to have gone to him for help, like whether it's a little desperate or, or a lot. If the reference to her nephew is important, because I assume it is, it's on the first page, we need one more reference to the child 
just to remind us of that. So it could be something like Clay smiles and she thinks about how crazy it is that her nephew is smiling in the same way as Clay, like how boys never grow up. I don't know. I don't know what it could be. But one more reference to the child if the child's important. I don't understand what made her think of Courtney. Like, was it the salute? And if Courtney doesn't know the real reason she left, why would Courtney talking to Clay matter? As a final note, the curiosity seeds, I highlighted them. They're really great, but they need specificity. All of them were a little bit on the generic side for my taste, except for the last one. So they are highlighted. You will be able to see them. This is good. It just needs tightening. Wonderful, Cece. And you managed to do it with only a little bit of helicopter hands flapping in the background. You managed to get that all in. I'm impressed. Right. Thank you for that. Okay. We now have our special guest and I'm going to leave that up to Carly to introduce her properly. All right. Welcome, JL. I'm going to introduce you to everybody on the podcast. You've been a guest on the podcast. You've been picked for our book club pick, but we'll do another official introduction because that's just how special you are to us. JL Richardson is the author of The Stone Thrower, A Daughter's Lesson, A Father's Life, a memoir based on her relationship with her father, CFL quarterback Chuck Ely, which was adapted into a children's book in 2016. Her debut novel, Gutter Child, is a dystopian story of courage and resilience and became an instant bestseller in January 2021. The novel was shortlisted for three word awards, and we just found out it won one, and it was a finalist for the 2021 Amazon First Novel Award. Her most recent title, Because You Are, is a touching picture book written as a letter to her younger self. Richardson holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Guelph and lives in Brampton, Ontario, where she founded and serves as the executive director for the Festival of Literary Diversity, also known as The Fold. Welcome, JL. Thank you for having me, everyone. So glad to be here. Appreciate it. Wonderful. Well, Dale, we have a habit of diving straight in on the podcast. So we are going to ask you, could you please read your query letter? And then we'll ask you for your advice and your take on it. Oh, I love this. Okay. So thank you for this opportunity and all that you do for writers. So it's addressed to Bianca, Carly, Cece, and myself. I'm an avid listener of the podcast and a member of the Books with Hooks book club. I can't tell you how much each of you and your generosity helps emerging writers like me. Thank you, JL, for your remarkable gutter child, not awkward reading that at all, and for taking the time to read my query and opening pages. Burst is my debut upmarket women's fiction, complete at approximately 100,000 words. It explores what it means to be a good mother, a la Jessamine Chan's The School for Good Mothers, in a setting reminiscent of Janice Y.K. Lee's The Expatriates, content note sexual assault. Shanna Spencer won't be winning Hong Kong's Mother of the Year anytime soon. That award doesn't go to women who attack teenage boys in country club bathrooms. But since when has she been the type of mother to get herself arrested, while drunk and in front of her kids, no less? Shanna's life was far more four seasons than four cell walls up until now. For two decades, she's lived a far-flung life she never could have imagined, thousands of miles away from the tiny American hometown she happily left behind. Shanna's perfect bubble bursts when she discovers her daughter, Maya, was assaulted by a fellow student who filmed himself fondling her at a party while she was passed out. Shanna's discovery triggers her rage. She wants nothing less than justice for her daughter, but all Maya wants to do is forget it ever happened. As Shanna tries to convince her daughter to get the person who assaulted her expelled and press charges against him, her painful past bullies its way back into her present when she receives a message from her own assaulter. Rather than facing this demon, she channels her fury into battling the one her daughter asked her not to. 
Threatening a teenager and getting arrested are just the start of Shanna's self-destruction. Can she save herself before she loses her family and the life she loves? And then it has a little bit about the author. I'm an American and have been living in Asia since 2007. I recently broke up with Hong Kong after 13 years. I now live a quiet life in Singapore with my family and two adopted cats, where I'm working on my second manuscript. I hold a BA in journalism from Indiana University and an MPA from Columbia University. Wonderful, JL. Thank you so much. So will you give us your take on that query letter? This is a good one because there's things I like and then there's things that I'm like, huh, what is happening? So I think some of the things that grab me, I really, I love a comp that I recognize and enjoy. I think the comparison to Just Me and Chan's The School for Good Mothers is a good one. I don't know if they know that I recommended it on CBCQ, but definite plug for just knowing that that's something that I would reference. And also to Janice Y. Kaylee's The Expatriates. I think that's a really solid start and definitely something that grabs my attention. I also really liked the opening, the second paragraph, I would say, where she says, Shanna Spencer won't be winning Hong Kong's Mother of the Year anytime soon. I really like that kind of comedy and also intrigue there. And I love what she says, that award doesn't go to women who attack teenage boys in country club bathrooms. I really like what she's doing in that paragraph and the kind of comparison she's making. Shanna's life was more four seasons than four cell walls. It gives me the feeling, and this is kind of contrary to the School for Good Mothers, that there's a little bit of humor alongside the more serious elements of the book. And if that's the case, I think that's a good way to approach your pitch, right? Teasing the kind of tone that it will take and the way that it perhaps contrasts the School for Good Mothers, which is all quite serious, if I recall correctly. The paragraph after that is where I started to get confused. There was a little bit of confusion for me about whose assault we were talking about at various moments and about what moment the mother's arrest was attached to. So I think for me, this third paragraph in the letter where she talks about Shanna's perfect bubble burst when she discovers her daughter Maya was assaulted and it goes into a little bit of the plot for me was a bit messy and unclear maybe gave too much but also a bit confusing for me honestly I had to go back a few times and be like who's the bully who was assaulted when did this happen what's the main thrust of the story is it the daughter's assault or is it the mother's like experience beforehand So I think that would just require some tightening for me in that particular section. But otherwise, I mean, there's enough of it that I'm interested for sure. Wonderful, JL. Thank you. All right. So our summary of these pages are the following. So we start with the timestamp, October 2018 in Malibu, California. We have a letter. Our letter is from Shanna, our main character, to Brad. And it's kind of a divorce letter, basically. Her just saying, like, after 20 years together, composing this letter to you feels strange. And kind of just explaining the fact that where they live in California and et cetera, et cetera. So it's a bit of a kind of like a setting letter kind of explaining that that she's divorced. Then we get a section where it says uh, she rolls her eyes at the computer screen. And so she's talking about her regrets over the course of her life. And then we have another set of ellipses to kind of break it up again. We jump to June 2018. Again, asking more questions. How did I end up here? How many times have I asked that question? And so we go through some some additional questions there. We get another set of ellipses and we learn about her parents. They're dead now. They were married 50 years. We jump again to I was drunk at the night, the country club when the police shows up. So I think this is again referencing back to the query letter. And then we jump to chapter two, March 2018 in Hong Kong, where she is actually attacking the boy in the room. Okay. JL or Kali, do you guys have thoughts on the opening pages? Yeah, I can offer some thoughts. 
I don't love when books start with a letter. I feel like it's a really, it can be kind of passive for me and I'm unsure how to get connected to them. And I think what's interesting about the submission is it's actually something that I have struggled with, with my first book, which is just the clarity of narrative, like who's actually the voice of the story and how is it being constructed all the way through. So I think one of the things I would say is to just, especially when you look at chapter two, when it starts to get into a more consistent narrative, is thinking about that opening chapter. Is this really where you want to begin? And definitely thinking about voice and narrative when you're thinking about where to begin. What is the thing the voice, the tone that's going to carry the reader all the way through and really starting trying to do that from the opening pages rather than kind of setting up all the things that might be covered over the course of the book or kind of key elements before getting into the actual action. That's just structurally, I think, what one of the big recommendations I would make. Wonderful. Thank you. Carly, what did you want to add to that? Yeah, I was, I'm just going to echo the same thing. I I found it pretty choppy, right? We're like, we're jumping around, we have our letter, and then we have our dot, 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 and then we have a section and then a dot, dot, dot. So I really, I just feel like the, you have such an opportunity here, right? I think this is, you've kind of grabbed us mostly from the query letter. And now there's this opportunity to just really get to know our characters, spend some time with them, exactly figure out what the crisis is. And we're just, we're jumping around so much. And I almost, I almost feel like I can't trust this character yeah. because it's like, she writes the letter and then it's like, and then we jump to her like rolling her eyes. And then we talk about the police showing up and there's also some really strong language to like page three for me. And so I don't have any problem with strong language, but it's like clearly the character is trying to say something or the author is trying to say something about the character and, and how we should be perceiving the character. There's some sections about like her parents. So she says, how many, how did I end up here? How many times have I asked myself that question? I suppose what I'm really asking is, am I fucked up enough to have gotten to this place that I can't dig myself out of? And then she drops the F-bomb again a little bit later. My parents are dead now, and this is only a few lines apart. My parents are dead now, but they were married nearly 50 years, happy according to them, sort of, by my assessment. They didn't abuse me as a kid, tie me up in the basement to starve while they feasted and fucked floors above me. I was like, okay, some strong words. Um, You know, like... I don't know what as the reader we're supposed to kind of put together here. And that's why I'm like the trustworthiness, right? Are we playing with that? Like what of her memories should we be believing and what should we not be believing? It's not pitched as like a uh, an unreliable narrator type of book, but I'm kind of I'm kind of getting that vibe. And maybe that's what we're supposed to be thinking kind of with the school of good mothers kind of comp as well. I didn't finish that book. I'm like, I've started it. <laughs> I'm like beside my bedside <laughs> it's, table. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's heavy. It's, it's so heavy. I have two small heavy. kids. I'm like, oh my God, it's so heavy. Yeah. So Jail, what do you think? Well, I I agree with you. And I think that if, okay, so I think if you want to go with that strong language and that strong tone, and that's that's your voice, and you got to really lean into it because it's hard to just dip into it and then dip out to a more casual approach to content. Like if your character is like really messed up and is dealing with a lot of stuff and you're going to explore that in the book, then that really has to be like a voice and an approach that you lean hard into. And I think in that way, the pitch letter isn't as accurate, right? Because the pitch letter gives this kind of funny, clever, lightheartedness. And then you get into this really heavy kind of throwaway language in some places, right? Like maybe I messed up, like it's really fucked. So I think you have to really decide. And this is, I'll go back, maybe repeating myself a little bit. When I first submitted Stone Thrower, I had all of these voices. I want to do a little bit of dialogue. I want to do a little bit of imagining. I want to do a little bit of like narrative and exposition. And when I got my first review, it was like, what? who is telling this story? What is the choice you're making? And I feel like 
this author hasn't fully made a choice about who's telling the story and how. And one of the things I really recommend that I learned in writing is figure out who's telling the story and who they're talking to. And that can be really helpful because instead of jumping from a letter to a little bit of prose to a different tone or a different narrative moment, you really think, okay, this is a mother talking to her own mother about her experiences or talking to a guy at the bus stop about her own experiences. And if you get that specific, it helps you make very good choices about where you begin and how you get there. If you're telling this story as a personal account to a man at the bus stop, you're not going to start with my parents were really fucked up and like they did all these things back in the day. You're going to be like, look, I know this might sound strange, but I'm not the best mother. You know, and you might then go into this narrative about what's happening and some of the things that have gone on in your life. But that's one of the things I would highly recommend to this author is you have your story, you know, kind of what happens. Now figure out who's telling it and how it should be told and make sure these opening pages reflect a solid choice, not just a lot of content that needs to get out in order to tell your content that comes later. Excellent advice, JL. Thank you. Question for Carly. So, If this author's intention is for the narrator to be unreliable, for us to be having these feelings up front, then would you suggest that they change the query letter to reflect that? Yeah, yeah, I would. Yeah. And the more that I'm, the more that I'm looking at this, I'm also realizing we have some, we have like a first person, third person change here too. I don't know, Jail, if you're noting that as we're going like. That's what I was saying when it's talking about different voices like who's telling it it's it's not clear and it's really messy in that approach as a result you're kind of lost and that's you never want somebody lost on pages one through six right like that's just like bad 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 so really I think it, it comes as a result of like not making some of those choices or one of the things I think writers get hung up on is they really like the way first person sounds or they like the way third person sounds for a different part and so they flip back and forth in order to kind of show the difference of like what they can get but you have to make a choice on that. And that should also be in the query, right? That I think it helps to be, if it's going to be told in first person, then say it's in first person. If it's told by multiple narratives or with first and third, I think it's helpful to set that up. So at least in the hopes that your initial reader thinks it's a choice and not a lack of skill and a lack of intent or or clarity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I honestly think the book starts on chapter two because yeah. it starts with like March 2018, Hong Kong starts, you smug little shit, you should be in prison right now and you have the nerve, the fucking nerve, like blah, 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 blah. So it starts with like a really aggressive yeah. scene. I don't know. I kind of think it starts there, but then it's in third person. So if she did really did want that intimacy, then, then yeah, I don't know. I guess we got to do first person. So I think we can all, all agree this is interesting, but uh, but yeah, we're, we're trying to find our way through it, which always gives us a lot to talk about, but sometimes can be challenging for a critique. So you got us talking to say the least. <laughs> yeah. And remember how I say on the podcast often in terms of beginnings in stories, it's like circling a building. You're trying to find your way in. Sometimes it's through the front door. Sometimes it's the back door. Sometimes it's the damn fire escape or the chimney. So just keep circling until you find that perfect way in that's best going to serve this particular story. JL, thank you so much for joining us. It was wonderful having your input. And Carly and Cece, as always, thank you. And now we go to today's guest. 
we just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and Francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hi listeners, this is Robin Henry from Leaderly.net. I've been listening to Bianca, Cece, and Carly ever since I got laid up with a bum foot. I love the tips and the author interviews and the way they nurture early career writers. I'm also an author accelerator certified book coach. Historical fiction, women's fiction, and mystery writers work with me to craft the compelling novels readers crave about people who've made a difference. I have a giveaway, especially for podcast listeners. It's a review of the first 20 pages or 5,000 words of your work in progress. Find out what's working for your opening and what might need a rethink. 
This prize includes a 30-minute coaching session to go over written feedback and brainstorm solutions and next steps. The giveaway ends October 31st. I hope you'll enter today on the podcast giveaway page. Today's guest grew up in Kitchener, Ontario, and has been devouring stacks of books since third grade when the Trixie Belden series sparked her love of the genre. She has lived on both coasts of Canada as a member of the Canadian military and later as a military spouse. As an Alberta transplant, she is fascinated by mountains and loves to spend time with her husband at Waterton Lakes National Park in the Rocky Mountains. When she's not enjoying nature, she loves to create and consume chocolate confections, not necessarily in that order. It's my pleasure to welcome Christina Romerl. Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here. You have no idea. We're excited to have you. It's it's wonderful to have podcast listeners reach out when their own books are being published so that we can have them on the show because it always feels like a full circle moment for us. So before we get into your journey to publication, Christina, which I find fascinating, for our listeners who are not as familiar with the cozy mystery genre, could you give us a bit of an overview of the genre, what the conventions of it are, what's kind of expected when you sit down to write this kind of book? Absolutely. Cozy mysteries, think Murder, She Wrote with Jessica Fletcher. They are a subgenre within the mystery, the traditional mystery genre. And the big things that you have to remember is you're not going to encounter any graphic violence. Generally speaking, there's no swearing. There is a a bit of a new push in the genre to allow some swearing, but generally speaking, no swearing, no on-the-page sex, a few chaste kisses, maybe an allusion to something more, but it's very subtle. And it's all about who did it. So these are classic whodunits. So there are clues planted throughout, there are red herrings, and the idea is that you can't trick the reader. You have to give them enough clues that they can figure out who the killer is. So obviously there's going to be at least one murder. I personally like to think of myself as a two murder per book kind of gal, but at least one. And then you've got to take your sleuth through the clues and red herrings to try and get them to solve the mystery. Wonderful. And I think a sense of community is very important in these novels as well. If I think of the cozy mysteries that I've enjoyed, Louise Penny, if I think of Richard Osman, his Thursday Murder Club, etc., these are very much community orientated. These are not things that happen in the big city downtown, right? So these are things that happen in small communities with a kind of ensemble cast of quirky people. Absolutely. So there can be small communities within large urban centers. There are a few authors that do that very well, but you'll find that most cozy mysteries are set in small towns or villages, and it's usually a cast of recurring characters um, that you'll see. um, Often they are quirky and a little wacky. It's meant to be very cozy. There's a, a huge sense of connection and community woven throughout the book. Yeah, my husband has always said if he ever went anywhere and saw Angela Lansbury, he would run a damn mile because you know bad things are going to happen around this woman. He was like, how did no one ever suspect her to be the murderer? Because everywhere she goes, someone dies. (laughs) But yeah, these communities are so lovely and quirky, but bad things tend to happen in these lovely little villages and towns. Right, so for our listeners, I'm going to read to you the flap copy 
for the book we're discussing today, which is A Christmas Candy Killing. Dun, dun, dun. And just on the no swearing part, apparently I will never be able to write a cozy mystery because I have a super potty mouth. But here we go. Identical twin sisters Alex and Hannah are the owners of Murder and Mayhem, a mystery bookshop that sells their famous poison-themed killer chocolates. But now there's a real killer in their midst. Shortly before Christmas, their septuagenarian neighbor Jane confides to Alex that a murderer from a true crime show has taken up residence in the village. Unfortunately, she's also shared her suspicions with the town gossip Netta. The next morning, Alex shows up at Jane's house to watch the show, but instead discovers Jane's body with a box of killer chocolates nearby. The sheriff quickly zeroes in on two suspects, Alex, a beneficiary in Jane's will, and Zach, a handyman who was seen leaving the crime scene. But Alex maintains her innocence and sets out to draft a list of other potential suspects, townsfolk who's recently been seen arguing with Jane. When Alex gets hold of Jane's journal, she begins to understand the truth. But a bearer of ill tidings is arriving early this year, and Alex just might not make it to Christmas. So, so much there. I, for one, would like to go to this bookstore, Murder and Mayhem and the Killer Chocolates. Tell us how you came up with that. I live in that village. So the village in uh, Christmas Candy Killing is pretty much where I live. Now, I have enhanced it somewhat. There is no bookstore here. But if there was, that is what I envisioned. So I kind of took all the great things that I've read in other cozy mysteries and just decided to plant them here where I live and create this little wonderful community that is just filled with little cute shops. And I think I I seem to recall, I spent a lot of time on Pinterest, actually, as I was trying to create visions for each aspect. So I think I looked at about 100 different bookshops to help create my vision of murder and mayhem. So Pinterest figured highly in my research. I love that. I do exactly the same. I have vision boards, giant vision boards above my desk that have got pictures of what my characters look like. If they have tattoos, it's got pictures of that. If they're whatever setting they're in, I take a composite of different places and then sort of bring it all together to create my own world. And I love, Christina, that you have used where you live as a basis for the setting. Because I think for some writers, it's really difficult to imagine a whole new town and to draw plans of the town and where the roads are and where the church is in relation to the coffee shop, in relation to the only town's bar, etc. Can you take us a bit through that process and where you embellished where you needed to and where you sort of kept it the same? Did you begin with a map of the layout of your town? I did. I actually made my husband drive me up and down every street here in our village, and I made notes and a little hand-drawn map. And then I did adjust it a little bit to suit the book. But basically, it is a, a full map of our little village and I created a huge poster board that I keep with me and I have notes on it. So I know where everyone lives and where the shops are, where things happen. And I do refer to it quite a bit. I've actually written book two and went back to it many times because you don't want to accidentally put somebody that you've already talked about in a previous book into the same house that that you've used before. So I keep a very detailed record. Yeah. 
The consistency is key, but also in terms of this kind of story, if someone's going to be accused of a murder and they were spotted in the bar having a drink, you need to be able to figure out, can they make it back on time from wherever the murder took place? So these kinds of logistics are hugely important when plotting out this kind of story. So I love the degree of detail that you brought to it. Do you have people in the town wondering if there are any of these characters? I don't know if anybody's wondering. I have mentioned to one couple who actually do own the inn, the bed and breakfast, that they are very loosely based for those characters. And I mean, some people are completely made up. Not everybody is based on someone, but there are a few people who, yeah, they are loosely based. And that's who I picture when I'm writing about that character. So we'll see if anybody comes to me later and wonders if they are so-and-so. People generally love that. They love hearing that a character was based on them, obviously, so long as it's a fun, nice, quirky character and not one of the the more awful characters, certainly. Right. So you have said that you dabbled in creative writing and procrastination for about 15 years. So this is a huge problem of writers is procrastination. I feel like when I'm teaching creative writing students and they're asking me what kind of chair I use and whether I write out in a journal or whether I type or what the lighting is like in my room when I write, I feel like this is all just a level of procrastination for writers. And I think so much of this procrastination comes from a place of fear. We're always so scared that we're not going to do a story justice, that we don't have what it takes, etc. And so we get involved in all this procrastination. Tell us about that journey for you. What did that look like? I have wanted to write a book since I was a teenager and I was creating them in my mind. We used to have a trailer up in the Muskoka region in Ontario and every weekend we would drive up two and a half hours and I would spend that time plotting mysteries in my head. And when I became an adult, that thought was always there, but it wasn't until about 15 years ago that I actually decided to do something about it. And I bought a laptop and I just started writing. And it wasn't long, you know, a couple pages in when I realized that you needed to have some plot and structure and, and so it didn't go very far. And then I'd put it away and I drag it out again, you know, a few months later, sometimes a few years later. And I, again, no plot, no structure, no real thought about what this great masterpiece was going to be about. And so it wasn't until about, oh, well, I guess it's been 10 years, I decided to take a creative writing class that I thought, well, this will definitely spur my writing on. And it was just a non-credit course at our college here in town. And it was a great class. We had writing prompts. And so I actually had to do some writing. But it didn't help me with that initial problem of getting a real thought out process uh, plot outline for an actual book. It did help with a lot of teaching me about description and things like that. So it was a great start because that was really where I credit it, the, the journey really beginning. And then it was a few years after that, that I thought, I need something because I'm always using the excuse, I have no time. And I think that's probably common. And so I decided I would do a weekend and I'd call it a writing boot camp. And it was just me in my office, but I was just going to write. And I actually did start by doing an outline. And so I had been thinking about what I wanted to write about. I had decided on a genre, which of course was cozy mystery. And 
that was really what I would say where, where actual pages of writing began. And unfortunately, that was only about 30 pages before I realized that my outline and my plot just weren't working. And so I put it on the shelf, thought about it a lot. And then a year later, we had a pandemic. And my library closed, as did many. And I was without work. And I realized I had absolutely no excuse not to be writing. And so I planted my butt into a chair in my office and started revising that original outline to make it work. And that was where this book was born. It it just it was just a matter of making that decision that I was going to do it and that I wasn't going to let any excuses come up anymore. So every day just about I sat down and and wrote something. And that has been I think my incentive since then is this just that every day I need to do something. It doesn't always have to be working on the book or an outline, but I have to think about it or I have to be doing some sort of marketing or promotion. Something to do with writing has to be done pretty well every day. And it's been working. So, and in fact, I I love it. If I go too long without actually doing the real writing, I start to miss it. I love being in that world and in the characters' worlds and in their heads. And it's really, I think it was just, it was part of it. It was just a mindset. I love that you took that course to find out what you didn't know, because here's the thing. We all have language at our disposal. So from when we're little, we learn language, we know about the alchemy of words, and we speak every day and we write every day. And so that's why most people just assume they can write a book, because they're like, well, it's just language and it's just telling a story. And I've been speaking my whole life, so I'm an expert on my language, so I'm going to write a book. And that I think is how many of us come to it. And we say, okay, I'm a reader. How difficult can this be? But here's the thing. Masterful writers make it look so easy. It's the same as master Olympians make something look so easy. And then you try it yourself and you realize how tough it is. And the thing is, you don't know what you don't know until you start to realize what you don't know. And there are so many resources out there besides podcasts like this. At any given time, if I want to look up anything about writing, I will Google it and I will find resources, whether they're on Readsy or on Writers Now, or there's tons of resources that writers can look up. So it's not that you need to be spending money, because this is often something we hear. Well, there's barriers to entry. There certainly are, but you don't need to do an MFA. You don't need to do all these courses to be able to become a better writer, because really becoming a better writer is writing writing and evaluating what you're writing. Did you have writing group friends or beta readers along the way? Christina, were you doing this in a vacuum? I was really doing this in a vacuum. I am a true introvert. So none of my friends are really readers to the degree that I am, I don't think, and certainly not wannabe writers. I didn't really have Facebook or Instagram friends to reach out to. So for me, actually podcasts was the thing. Those became my writing friends. So I started listening around the same time that I did my little boot camp. That was when I started looking for writing podcasts, anything that I could on the internet. Elizabeth Spann Craig has a ton of free writing resources for cozy mystery authors on her website. There are others as well. And I just combed the internet for these sort of free resources. I mean, I, I have a few 
books that I've purchased on writing, but the majority of the information that I got was free. So there, I, I mean, like you said, there really are very small barriers to entry. Pretty much if you've got a phone or a computer or a library where you can access the internet, then you can get the same resources that I did. And I, it did. It taught me how much I don't know about writing. Yes, I know English and yes, I can write a, a coherent sentence, but there was so much more learning about three-act structure and dialogue and exposition, showing and not telling and all those things that make for good writing. And so that's where I learned it. I was unfortunately not aware of your podcast when I first went out to do my querying. When I first started out, I found it very soon after actually. And that has been a huge incentive because your podcasts, even though a lot of it is about querying it, there is so much information there for anybody who can apply it to their book. It doesn't matter what genre you write in. It's just about good writing. And so I've learned so much and I've been able to go back. And when I was in the editing phase with my editor at the publishing house, I was able to go back and make a few minor changes and tweaks and use that information because it's huge how you can improve it. You hear a couple of tips that CC and you and Carly give and you think, wow, I need to go through my book and I need to apply that. And yeah, it, it makes for so much better writing. And yeah, the resources are definitely all out there for free. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And yeah, you know what? I'll be sitting talking to Carly and Cece and they'll say something and I'll be like, oh, hell yeah, that's applying to what I'm writing. And I'll quickly scribble down a note. And so I'm learning from them all the time as well. But yeah, for our listeners, libraries are amazing. You don't have to go out and buy Story Genius and saves the cat writes a novel you can get them from libraries get all these resources and it's wonderful to see an author succeeding who didn't have to spend a ton of money on courses and all kinds of things to improve so in terms of this particular genre something that I think all of our listeners can learn from is the way in which you can leave a clue or plant curiosity seeds throughout the novel that then later have to pay off. Because what I like about the genre is that the reader has to be able to figure it out themselves based on the information you've given them. Because I think there's a lot of instances where suddenly at the end there'll be some new character introduced and that person was the killer and there's no damn way they could have figured that out in the first place. So what with the rest of our time we have left, which isn't very much because we've had a wonderful discussion, could you give our listeners some advice with regards to that? How did you go about setting up those red herrings, planting the clues? Was that all in your outline up front so you knew what had to be revealed at what point? Or was that a case of trial and error and it got better with every draft that you wrote? Definitely, I am an outliner. So I start with my victim and my murderer. And then I work backwards. So I decide who I'm going to kill, how I'm going to kill them. And then I start the story and I start planting clues and red herrings, there is a lot of revising. So it's funny, there was, I remember at one point, I went back and I was going to make sure I had a clue planted. And I realized that I had somehow just intuitively done that already. And so it was amazing to find that and think, 
I can't believe I did that all just naturally. It just in my writing, it was there. And so I do go back over and over and over, making sure that I've got the clues that I want, that it's not too obvious, because sometimes I'll I'll adjust a clue because I think, ooh, that's almost a giveaway. I'll go back and try and restructure some red herrings. I have been known to change my killer at the very end. So one of the things that I do is I make sure every one of my suspects pretty well could have done it. And so it makes it easier than if I do make a change like that at the end. There's a few adjustments. But so for me, it's all about the outline. I have a, a, a fairly robust outline where I know what's going to happen, who's going to do things, when, and then I go back as in the revising process and I make sure that it all works and that the timing works. Like you said earlier, I make sure that if I said so-and-so ran from here to there, that that in fact could have happened in the time frame that I say it does. I make sure that I do any research for the book. So if I'm killing with a poison, for example, then I want to make sure that I know how long that poison takes to work and what the real um, symptoms would be. So I, I really do quite a bit of research on how to kill my victims. My husband has been very good about letting me pretend to kill him a few times now um, so that I can be realistic. Dead body weight is a lot heavier than you might think. So, and so, yeah, that's that is for me the big thing is is there is a lot of outlining and revising. I love that image. I'm picturing Christina dragging her husband across the floor for 10 meters or so to see if it's possible. And these are things that are important. When I was doing my psychological thriller that never got published, I had my husband tied up to a chair using his tie. If anyone had walked in, they would have thought we were up to some really kinky stuff. But honestly, this was just me testing, like how would this action look? And I filmed myself tying him up to the chair so that I could see the motions so that it makes it so much more real in your mind to describe something when you can actually watch it. So for our listeners, don't be afraid of acting things out and doing these sort of things and seeing, can a woman who weighs this much and goes to the gym once a week, can she drag somebody who's this heavy across the floor for this long, etc.? Right, Christina, it's been absolutely wonderful chatting with you. For our listeners, we are going to put the book on our bookshop.org affiliate page, A Christmas Candy Killing, so that you can find it there. The book is now out, and go and find it. It is absolutely delightful to read, such a delight, and perfect for the Christmas season and lots to learn along the way. Christina, we wish you much luck with it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It's been great. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. 
It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. 
But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.